Good morning. Happy Sunday. Good to see you all. The, the few of you that aren't sick, great to see you. Um, today we've titled, uh, the sermon today is called Enter His Rest, uh, Enter His Rest, which is, uh, which is available to um, every, um, every human being, but it's, but it's available in increasing ways for those who know Jesus Christ, that have been brought into His rest. And I think if, uh, if you're honest with yourself today, and um, as I've been honest with myself, that even though I know that I have rest with God, I have peace with God, I don't experience that rest, uh, that peace on a daily basis. I experience restlessness in a restless and weary world. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that uh, you came to bring us rest, to bring us rest with you and in you and peace with you. And God, I uh, thank you also that you uh, test us and that you give us trials. God, I'm grateful for trials, not oftentimes not in the midst of it, but God, I see the peaceable fruit of righteousness that you produce in your children through trials. And I thank you, God, that, um, that we can find rest in you um, in the midst of, of um of a broken and weary world. And God, we can find great joy in that rest in the midst of testing and trials. So God, this is a, uh, man, this is a tough book. And God, I, um, I pray that, that uh, Holy Spirit, that you would allow me to um, just bring clarity and not bring more confusion. And I pray, God, most of all, that you would be glorified and honored this morning and that we would be edified, that every, um, every one of your treasured possessions that is here today would, would experience your rest in increasing ways, and that they would um, desire, uh, that they would strive to enter your rest on a daily basis. So God, have your way with us here today. May you be honored and glorified. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And God's people said... Amen. As Lynette just read, we're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. I've titled it, uh, Enter His Rest. And I've kind of put a, a propositional phrase up front that we are restless people, trusting in our locations, vocations, and vacations to bring us rest. None of those are bad uh, vocations, locations, or vacations. But when we trust in those things to bring us rest, um, it, it will actually do the opposite. Alex Day... Tocqueville, a controversial historian and political writer from France, came to America to see what a great republic was like. And here's an excerpt from the book he wrote called Democracy in America. It is a strange thing to see what sort of feverish ardor Americans pursue well-being and how they show themselves constantly tormented by a vague fear of not having chosen the shortest route that can lead to it. The inhabitant of the United States attaches himself to the goods of this world as if he were assured of not dying, and he rushes so precipitously to grasp those that pass within his reach that one would say he fears that each instant he will cease to live before he has enjoyed them. He grasps them all, but without clutching them. And he soon allows them to escape from his hands so as to run after new enjoyments. Death finally comes, and it stops him before he has grown weary of this useless pursuit of a completely 
of the complete felicity that always flees from him. And what makes this comment on the United States so striking, and it can be true of every culture, not just the United States, but we happen to live in the United States, um, is that it was written in the 1930s. And it was written by a man who wasn't a Christian. The modern middle class, as Tocqueville put it, is restless in the midst of their well-being. That America, that people today in the 1830s, this is, a, this is a condition of the American heart that we are restless even in the midst of our well-being. Does this describe you at some level today? Are you restless in your well-being? There's no rest outside of God's rest. There's no rest for any human being outside of God's rest. Augustine said, for you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. And this isn't just a one-time profession of faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. This is a daily entering into the rest of Jesus Christ. The invitation from today's scripture is to enter his rest. And this is an invitation for those who have already put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, to experience God's rest today. It's one thing to find rest for your soul, but it's another thing to find continued rest in the midst of trials and tests and temptations. I would encourage you, if, you've not, if you weren't here last week, you didn't listen to the sermon, to, uh, to go home today and listen to it. This is really a part two of that sermon. It's really part three because it started in chapter three, verse one, which we did back in November. But last week, the author of Hebrews tapped into the words of David in Psalm 95 to warn, warn his readers not to make the same mistake as those who were delivered from 430 years of slavery and affliction in Egypt. They had forgotten these, these, these Israelites who were, uh, who were delivered from 430 years of slavery and affliction in Egypt had forgotten that they were saved, what they were saved from, and they didn't continue trusting in God's promise of a better land. And Christians, we have a promise of a better land. We have a, we have a hope for a better city. And their mistrust, the Israelites' mistrust and unbelief caused them to grumble in their trials. We saw that last week, which led to hardening hearts. And it led further to a dwindling faith in the promises of their deliverer. So our author pled and warned Christians who experienced an exodus from slavery to sin and Satan not to harden our hearts when we hear, our, hear God's voice today. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Let me review. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He's telling his audience in first century Judea, and he's telling us, his audience today, to not harden our hearts as the Israelites hardened their hearts when they were wandering in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test for those 40 years and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then go down to verse 19 of chapter 3. They were unable to enter because of what? 
because of unbelief, because they didn't trust in the ongoing promises of God. Enter what? Enter his rest. They were not able to enter his rest because of unbelief. Not any rest, not simply resting. They were unable to enter God's rest. And we're going to take a look at this rest, God's rest today. God promised to save them, the Israelites, from their slavery and bondage in Egypt. But his promise was better and fuller than they could ever have imagined. He was saving them out of a land of slavery and captivity, and bringing them to the promised land. You see, our salvation is not just what we've been saved from, praise be to God, we've been, we've been saved from the power and the penalty of our sin. We've been saved from the power of Satan. But as importantly, maybe more importantly, is what have we been saved to? We've been saved to a relationship to rest and trust in our promise-keeping God. That he is with us every day and in every circumstance. And then we have a promise of a future rest that will be a perfect rest. This promise that was given to the Israelites was first given to Moses from God in the burning bush. And that's in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. See, what God is doing here, God describes this destination as a good land and a broad land that is flowing with milk and honey because those foods, milk and honey, um, require green pastures and consistent harvests. This is a beautiful way of describing redemption from captivity into freedom. Israel knew slavery and bondage, but the Lord is rescuing them into sweetness and abundance. And this promise in the Old Testament, this promise of a land that is overflowing with milk and honey, is repeated often, 16 times I counted in the Old Testament, that God's people would be delivered, not just from slavery and affliction, but they would be delivered to a land, a good land, an abundant land that is flowing with milk and money. It's milk and money. That's a Freudian slip. Yeah, that, that's in America. God, deliver me to a land of milk and money. Like, I'm going to, like, don't tweet that one. This, somebody takes, like, a snippet out of this sermon, they put it all over Facebook, and they say, do not go to that church. Well, um, when our circumstances are dire, we can still trust our God who takes the vinegar of our situation and turns it to honey. Even when our present is bitter, as it often is, is it not? Our future is sweet. The future for God's people is sweet. The land he promised is peaceful and fruitful and abundant. And the promised rest in the, in the good land of milk and honey is a foreshadowing of an already but not yet rest that is available for anyone who trusts in the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want you to like hang on to that. That rest is, in many of God's promises are already but not yet. That we've, that, we've, that we've tasted them. We get a, a foreshadowing of what those promises look like in their fullness. And it's the same with rest, that we have rest. We have God's rest 
today, but not in its fullness. We'll have, we'll have it in its fullness one day. But we can, we can, uh, we can experience this rest today as we, lo- as we grow and learn to trust in His promises. We haven't even started poking in today's passage yet, but I have more context work to do because Hebrews um, uses the Old Testament. The, the author of Hebrews uses the Old Testament more than any New Testament author. So we're, we're going to need to go back and visit some of that again. We read in chapter 3, verse 19 of Hebrews, that they were unable to enter, that, that the Israelites were unable to enter his rest because of what? Because of unbelief. Because they didn't trust in God's promises. Many of those who did not enter because of unbelief might have been, we're going to see them in heaven someday. That, that Christians don't believe perfectly. We believed once that we were sinners and that Jesus came to forgive us of our sin. But every day is it not a fight to trust and believe the promises of God? So how could they not enter his rest? The best way to describe your unbelief is to look at the account in Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, which takes place at the end of the 40 years. After 40 years of wandering, after they've been delivered, 40 years of grumbling and rebellion, 40 years of God's faithfulness, 40 years of of God's people being unfaithful, we get this account in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, and we're going to do a high-level skim over it. So it should be on the screen, starting in Numbers uh, chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Send send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who are heads of the people of Israel. God said, set aside the strongest men from every tribe and send them into the promised land, the the land of milk and honey, the land that, that I promised you when I delivered you from bondage in Egypt. And they went and spied out the land for 40 days. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. And what? No surprise. It flows with milk and honey. And here's its fruit. It's exactly what was promised. And the next word in verse 28 is however. The best word in the Bible is but, one T. That that we're we're in temptations and trials, but God. But here it is that God is, they're, they're, they're experiencing God's promise and they say, however, However, the people who who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. 
You see, the promise was right there. All they had to do was believe it, trust in it, and rest in it, but instead fear took over. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land, this land overflowing with milk and honey, to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? To go back to slavery and affliction? Verse 6, in Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephaniah, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. They were frustrated, they were grieving, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. With this backdrop, we'll dive into today's passage. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since all who didn't believe didn't, did not enter the rest, God's rest, therefore, while the promise of entering the rest still stands for God's people today, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it is, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The good news, what was the good news that came to them? At the end of the 40 years, at the, uh, at, the, at the edge of the promised land, it was the good news from Caleb and Joshua that the land was exactly how God promised it. And the big people there, they're but bread to us. We don't fear them, they're but bread to us who have the Lord on our side. Back up to Numbers 14.8. For if the Lord delights in us, if you know Jesus Christ, the Lord delights in you. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. But you, the one who the Lord delights in, do not rebel against the Lord. You, the one whom the Lord delights in, do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. His protection is on you. And the Lord is with us, so do not, do not fear them. 
The warning here is to, uh, what are we supposed to fear? Back up in um, verse 2, for the good news came to us just as it came to them. Uh, where's the fear part? Verse 1, therefore while the promise of entering the rest still stands, let us fear. The warning here is to fear unbelief, to fear not trusting God. To fear not trusting in the promises of God. Because as long as you are trusting in the promises of God, you can be utterly fearless in the face of anything, even death, even God. And these people that feared, they were not united by faith with those who listened to the good news. They may have had saving faith, but they didn't trust in the God who saved them. We can have saving faith, yet not trust God and His promises. The irony is that when we trust God in all things, we, when we trust God in all things that we fear, we can be utterly fearless in the face of any circumstance, even death, as I said. Verses 3 and 5, For we who have believed enter that rest, as He has said, as I swore my wrath, yet they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. That's a horribly worded passage. And I studied this hard. And and I have some conclusions, but I would also encourage you to study it as well. It's curious, and it's quite confusing that he starts with Psalm 95, verse 11, here in verse 3. And then he ends in verse 5 here with Psalm 95, 11. They shall not enter my rest. But those two bookends of 95, uh, Psalm 95, 11, they bookend Genesis 2, 2. You got to ask, well, what do they have to do with anything with each other? So the New Living Translation says this about verse 4. Let me just lay this out. It says this. Um, it reads this way. Even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. So in Genesis 2-2, God did what? After, on the seventh day, he rested. He rested from his creating work, his creation work. And F.F. Uh, Bruce says this. He says, he says, we're to understand that he began his rest on the seventh day. The fact that he is never said to have completed his rest and resumed his work of creation implies that his rest continues still. That, that he entered his rest. That he's resting today. And, may be, and this rest may be shared by those who respond to his word with faith and obedience. And here's what the emphasis is here in verse 3 and, and verse, uh, twice in verse 3 and once in verse 5. The emphasis here is on the possibility of entering his rest. The rest that we're invited to enter is the rest that God enjoys now. We're to enter his rest. His rest. Rest here is a metaphor for heavenly blessedness in which God dwells and of which he has promised to believers in Christ during and after the toils and trials of this life on earth. That we can enter his rest today in the midst of trials and toils and that we will one day um, enter his perfect rest. 
And the verb enter here is present tense. For, for we who have believed enter that rest. Which means we're in the process of entering. It began when we rested from our work and trusted in Jesus' finished work. And this entering is a daily trusting and growing in Him. You want more rest in your life. You want to know what it means to enter the rest of Jesus. It's trusting. It's believing. It's growing. And I was thinking about what of an example. Nancy and I, I don't know if this is going to work for you, it helped me. Nancy and I have had a dream for 41 years to have a cabin. A, a lodge, actually. A place um, that is where you've got to maybe um, drive three or four miles into it on a dirt road. In the wintertime, you've got you've to take a skidoo in there. They still call them skidoos. You've got to get in there. Or snowcat. Uh, even better. In a place where we could rest where we can find rest. And more importantly, here's our dream, a place where we can, in, we can invite others into our rest, to be with us in this, in, this, in this place of blessedness where we can eat together, where we can fellowship together, where we can have fun together, where I can beat you in cards. No, I don't win very often. But, but that's, this is what it is. This is when we enter God's rest, it's entering into his blessedness. It's entering into his presence where he is with us. And he is with you today in the midst of whatever you're going through. And we are going to be with him one day in all of his perfection, in his, in, in his perfect rest. And this rest um, isn't simply a rest which he promises to bestow upon us, but it's a rest that he himself enjoys today. This is a rest that was intended for all of humanity and has been ready since the beginning of creation. But the pinnacle of his creation, you and me, humanity, was not able to enter that rest because sin entered the world. But if you know Jesus, you can enter that rest today. And tomorrow, in the next day, even in your grumbling and thanklessness, that just because you grumble and had a bad day and you sinned um, doesn't mean that you're banned from his rest. Just the opposite. That the Father's arms are open. And he's saying, enter in. Come in. Receive forgiveness and grace. I want you to listen in the middle of this wandering 40 years where God was faithful and God's people tested him 40 times. They grumbled. I want you to listen to how God felt about them. What he said about these grumbling, thankless, non-trusting people. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord, uh, than the other people that the Lord set his love 
I'm going to read that again. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You may have trusted in the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins, but are you trusting in his promises today? Today, the day of testing, verses 6 and 7, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, what, his rest? And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter his rest because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying that through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Friends, are you restless? Are you restless today? You may have received the good news of Jesus Christ by faith, yet you may may be living a restless life of grumbling and disobedience to the one who saved you. The reason you're restless is you're looking for rest in all the wrong places instead of drawing near to the one who is already near. Today, enter into his rest and let him soften your hardening heart. Verses 8 through 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Joshua, if you look at the New King James, or if you look at the King James version of this, it says, For if Jesus had given them rest, for the, the name uh, Joshua in Jesus in the Greek comes from the same, uh, uh, same Greek word, which is Iesus. Joshua gave them a temporal rest, but not eternal rest. This rest comes from another Joshua, and it's reserved for the people of God. So what does it mean that, that there remains a Sabbath rest? Um, and I was, where I was thinking that the Lord would lead me in this, where this, but it's not what the passage is about. It's about encouraging you to take a Sabbath rest. And you should. That's scriptural, but that's not what this is about. That, that God, um, that, that we are to enter into God's Sabbath rest. That he rested from his works on the seventh day, and we're to, and we're to experience that rest in him. Sabbath rest means to, means to rest, and it commemorates the original seventh day in which God rested after completing the creation. Jesus created the world in six days and then entered a Sabbath rest, and he created you and me to rest with and in him in all his perfection and in his perfect creation. And there would be a day later on in verse 8 when all would be invited to come into this rest. And we see this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We come to him. We come to him once by faith, but we come to him daily for rest in the midst of our labor and weariness. Take my yoke upon you. And, and yoke, if it, a yoke uh, has a connotation of working. Of pulling. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's no greater rest than to know God is at peace with us. 
When he died on the cross, securing our salvation and the restoration of all creation, he cried, it is finished. His work was over and he rested, and now we can finally enter his rest. The doorway to rest is saving faith. And the foyer to experience this rest is found in trusting the promises of God and living in obedience to his word. And I just got this picture in my head that we, we enter his rest. We, we come through the door of rest by faith. But we don't, we, one day we'll be in the living room of rest, um, dining with him. But in the meantime, we're like, we're in this foyer of rest and protection. And we can, we can see his face around the corner. We can hear his voice. Right now we have entered it by faith and we stand in the foyer by trusting him. And that brings us to the last section, like, how do we do this? When we're, when we're in the foyer, like, how do we fight to hear his voice? How do we fight to see his face? How do we fight to trust him in the midst of toils and trials? And he says in verse 11 through 13, let us therefore strive. There's work. We don't earn our salvation, but we work out our salvation. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharpened than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. At the beginning of this section, back in verse 1 of chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, we're told to fear unbelief. To fear unbelief because when we doubt the promises of God, there's no rest. And the promises of God aren't to give you something. Or to, or to um, it's okay to want something or to desire something, but you just because it's, it's something in your head, doesn't mean that God promises to give it to you. Whether it be a job or a child or a spouse, good things, or a vacation, or a location. We're to, we find rest by believing his promises. We're told not to, we're, we're to fear unbelief. Because when we doubt his promises, there's no rest. And if you're not resting, ask the Lord to show you what promises you're not believing in. This, again, is written to brothers. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, it's brothers, it's brethren, it's brothers and sisters. This is written to professing Christians. And God didn't tell the Israelites, work hard, in Egypt, making bricks. And when you work hard enough, when I've seen you've trusted me just enough, I will set you free from Egypt. That's law without gospel. Neither did God tell them when they were in Egypt, I, or after they were delivered from Egypt, I love you. I set you free by my grace. I ask nothing more of you except that you believe in this good gift. That's gospel with no law. Instead, God redeemed the people by his mercy and that by his mercy, 
It made a way for obedience. It's gospel, then law. It's trust, then obey. We need to hear God's voice in order to be reminded over and over again of His promises and His love for us. I don't know about you, but I preach here um, six, well, I preach for 60% of the time, and I still need to be reminded of the truth of God's Word. Truth leaks. Yes, we we can rely on old bread for just so long. But bread gets, can get stale, and we need to be reminded of the truth of God's Word. We need to be reminded of, of the promises of God's Word. Truth leaks, and the heart of man is naturally deceitful and wicked. We need the living, active Word of God to remind us of who we are and how God sees us. This gives rest. When I'm reminded in the midst of my grumbling and my unthankfulness of how God sees me and who he says that I am, it starts giving me a heart of thankfulness. It reminds me that he's near and it causes me to draw near to him. We, when we daily enter the foyer of his already but not yet, yet Sabbath rest, When we strive to enter, we hear his voice. We see his face. So in order to find rest in the promises of God, we need to interact with the word of God. If you're struggling, one of the first questions I'm going to ask you, with all the love and mercy I can muster up, is are you interacting with the word of God? Are you sitting under the teaching of God's Word on Sunday? Are you interacting with the Word of God at community group? Are you interacting with the Word of God at home, in the morning, in the evening? As we read, listen, or sit under the teaching of God's Word, we're reminded of His rest and what that means for you and me. The Puritan John Flavel exhorts Christians to give their hearts to the interaction of God's Word. He says, be diligent in this heart work. That's what the Word of God is. It's heart work when you're sitting under the teaching. Like he's doing, he's reminding us of who we are and who he is. But he's also doing surgery. He says, Flavel says, this heart work by interacting with the word translates into two things. It preserves our soul from sin. The more we spend time in God's word, it preserves the soul from sin and it maintains sweet communion with God. Said another way, when we interact with God's word, it helps us mortify and vivify is what he says which means it helps us to put off the old person, the old man, the old woman, and put on the new man or the new woman. And when we read God's Word, it reads us. Have you ever had that happen? You're reading God's Word. James 1 says it's like a mirror to the soul. That it reminds us of who we are and who God says that we are. But it also shows us our grumbling and our thanklessness. 
God uses his word to, re- word to reveal unbelief and disobedience that lurks in our hearts and keeps us from resting in him. All things are transparent to God. No one can hide from him. He uses his living and piercing and active word to search us deep and to show us thoughts and intentions that are displeasing to him. And when he shows that to us, his finger's not like this. His arms are like this. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Augustine once again said, for you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's not enough to just know about God. If you want to experience maximum abundance and joy in this life, draw near to him. Rest in him. Agree with the psalmist to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, I'm the king of restlessness. Lord, you know that that I'm prone to grumble and to be thankless and to want things my way right now. But God, I thank you that you've given us uh, freedom to pursue uh, vocation, location, and vacations. Thank you, God, that every good and perfect gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. But God, I thank you that we find true rest, lasting rest in you. So God, I pray that you would uh, enliven our hearts and help us, Spirit of God, to strive to enter your rest. And I thank you, God, that, uh, that even when we don't strive to enter your rest, that you are never there with a wagging finger, but open arms and inviting us daily into the foyer of your rest. We love you. We thank you that you're for your enduring love and your faithfulness to us, even when we're unfaithful. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.